Charlton Heston is a beast. Can we disagree? A straight beast. If I could like, if I could just talk like Charlton Heston all the time. Um, and you also wonder like, does, does God sound like that? You know? You, you start to wonder like what God's voice really sounds like. I mean, it's definitely not feminine uh, in its tone, but you know, is, does it have that much bass? Is it, you know, um, I love Charlton Heston. Uh, periodically, just for fun, we'll play clips just because they make me happy, so I'm not sure uh, if they do you. But we are uh, beginning a new journey tonight, and uh, when I say new journey, I mean that in every sense of the word. Um, a lot of prayer went into, a lot of discussion went into what book we should study next. For those of you that uh, have joined us uh, previously, you know that we study the Bible uh, books at a time, verse by verse. So when we make a commitment to a, uh, to a study... Um, we're making a large commitment, uh, especially to that of Exodus. Uh, it's going to be a long journey. And my prayer is tonight, um, no matter where you're at in it, that somehow God will kind of allow us to start it together. Because you're probably in one of three places with the book of Exodus. Uh, there's a group here that didn't even know that that's a book of the Bible. And that's totally fine. Uh, that's your reality. You didn't grow up in the church, you're a brand new believer. Um, you have been coached by other Christians to study uh, certain pieces of the Gospels in the New Testament. And, uh, and so Exodus to you um, maybe was a good 90s band, or, um, or, but definitely not a book of the Bible. I'm not even sure if it was the 90s band. I was just reaching there. Um, the second group of people um, is the category where most of you fit, and that's um, you think you know Exodus, but most of the stories that you've heard of Exodus have been told to you by someone else. And not by reading it yourself. Um, If you were to kind of take the amount of time that you've spent uh, reading and divulging into Exodus, that time, I'm guessing, is fairly minimal. However, you've heard a lot of the stories. You've seen the movies. uh, You've watched Prince of of Egypt. You've you've been to Sunday school maybe growing up. So you saw the felt board and, and the plagues and the parting of the sea. I mean, there's a lot of huge, epic stories. Um, My guess is, for some of you, it will be like Acts. Until you really study it, until we break it down, until we uh, rock through this book verse by verse, I think each of us at the end of this are going to be like, I I didn't know Exodus at all. Uh, There's a third category of people, and this category of folks, um, they did a dissertation in seminary on Exodus and can recite it uh, verbatim. And uh, that's probably no one here, but that would be the third category if there was one, okay? Is there anyone that fits that category, like the Torah you've memorized or the Pentateuch? Okay, no one? Okay, good. So we're, we're, most of us are here in the first or second categories. And it's okay. Like no matter where you're at in your understanding of Exodus walking into this, that's why we're here. We're here to study together, to learn God's word together, that we may be sent out in light of God's character. Agree? Okay. So tonight, um, our long journey begins in 1863. Okay, you're like, I don't know if that's biblically accurate. Well... Um, in 1863, a man said this, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Uh, He had spent days on a train, his kids were sick, he was sick, his wife was sick prepared a five-minute speech. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, he said. 
testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that this nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, said Abraham Lincoln. And then in his last paragraph of the Gettysburg Address, the most powerful words, though they're often not the most quoted. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, Um, but it, it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. And finally, it is rather for us to be here to dedicate to this great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we were here highly uh, resolved that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, interestingly he says, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth, says a man with a large hat in 1863. I love history. Any of the rest of you guys? The question is, why does history matter? Uh, I'm sure your history teacher in high school, and especially those that went on to college, gave you a great reason, day's worth, of why history matters. Let's take a Pearl Harbor, for example. I got obsessed with Pearl Harbor in high school. Um, If we just get to the end, if we're just interested in what happens at the very end, we all can, can say the answer. We were surprised on December 7th, 1941, I believe, right? By the Japanese army, our fleet was surprise attack. We lost many soldiers. That's the end. But we all will pay and did pay many years back, some of you just to see Ben Affleck, but others interested in the story will pay money because we're lured by the, the characters, we're drawn by the intricacies of the, the background. We're, we want to know like what the Japanese army was doing and what they were thinking and, and the battle plans. We're, we're not just satisfied with the end. Titanic is the same way. I love talking about the Titanic, right? I mean, I, Jared is more obsessed than I, but I, like him, was, uh, was greatly intrigued by the Titanic. Look, we all know the end, right? I mean, the, the ship sinks. And I heard many people, like when the, the, the great uh, movie came out, they're like, why should I go and see it? Like, you know, we know what, what happens. And yet, how many millions upon millions upon millions of people went to see it? Why? Because they're lured by the story. They want to know the characters. They're interested in how the captain perished. History is powerful, not because of the end, but because of the means that created the end. History matters because of the stories, because of the characters, because of the inworkings of a speech and a train that he rode on and children that were sick and the, the time that he spent working on these things. It's unfortunate that in our Christian culture, the Old Testament, for most of us, 
has sat on a bookshelf. And yes, it's still been a part of our Bible, but for many of you, the Old Testament is, is still held together. Like when you get a new Bible and the pages, right, you, you love like opening it because like the first time the parchment, you know, you, you turn, it just feels awesome in your fingers. But the Old Testament's still kind of clumped together. It's been unused for many of you. You haven't seen it for many of you. And, you know, I, I understand to an extent. Some of you started reading in Leviticus and you got a bit confused and weary, Okay. Uh, some great disciple of yours said that you should start in uh, you know, a, a book that maybe was a bit beyond uh, where you should have started. And so you're just like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not so sure about this. And, and you shut the Old Testament. And in doing so, shut this unbelievable story of God's redemption, of God's love, of God's character in page after page after page that speaks of it. If we were to all be honest, okay, first of all, we struggle reading God's word in general, but if we were to be honest beyond that, the Old Testament, you and I have spent probably little time in. That's why the elders here at this church said Exodus, which is such a quintessential piece of our understanding of the New Testament and what Jesus has done, we have to dig in together. And maybe in doing so, Not just a greater appreciation just for Exodus, uh, but maybe for the Old Testament as well. Maybe for history as well. So, um, I have to, can I just, can I just like be extremely vulnerable? Can I, is that cool? Not that you have a choice and not that I won't be, but either way, I'm I'm just, I feel like the need to ask. Um, This is a big, big, big task. Uh, a lot of folks have asked me, so how are you feeling about the start of Exodus? And um, Jared and I and many of the other staff guys, we, we've kind of talked this week. The commentaries on my desk literally make my desk lean over, okay? It like weighs down my desk. Um, I feel like, and I shared it backstage uh, just a moment ago, I feel like I'm, I'm like tired already in a good way because I know the journey of these people. And I've, you know, I've read ahead and I've studied and I've seen the, the journey of these people. And all I can say is, like, it's with a tremendous amount of weight and significance and humility that I want to start this journey with you guys. Okay? Uh, I'm not going to stand tonight and say that I have every answer about the book of Exodus for you. But what I'm inviting you into is to take the journey with me. And week in and week out, Jared or I, whoever's teaching, will be diligent in our study and will come together not just to learn a history lesson, but to understand the power of the person of Christ and the inworkings of how God's working in the Old Testament. Is that fair? Is that cool? All right. So I want to pray for that, and I'm not sure I got a response there, but that's okay. I'm going to pray for that, that God brings us all together in this journey um, because it's, it's heavy and it's going to be a blast. And it's not just part it sees. Okay, and Ten Commandments, and Charlton Heston's voice, though it would be awesome if it was, all right? Let's pray. Uh, God, I ask, uh, by your grace and your mercy, uh, that you would give both Jared and I a tremendous wisdom in uh, communicating the things from this amazing story that you would have us. I ask God right now in this room for a deeper appreciation of history, a longing to understand the connections of a book in Exodus, a book called Exodus with a book called Hebrews, 
with passages quoted from Exodus and the Gospel of Luke, and on and on and on. God, help us see the development, the building, the revelation of your character in this incredible story. God, please, bring us together in your holy and awesome name. In all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, first, um, a two-minute survey of the Old Testament, okay? 66 books in the Bible. I'm not sure if you've counted recently, but 39 of them are in the Old Testament. If you are doing the quick math like I am, that means the majority of the Bible is comprised in the Old Testament. And most assuredly, the first time you picked up the Bible and you just held the stack that is the Old Testament, you, that's probably why you chose the New Testament as your favorite, because you saw the chunk that's the old, you're like, no, nah, I don't think so. And you saw the chunk that's the new, you're like, okay, I can do that. And in some of your old school Bibles, at the separation of the Old and New Testament, there were pictures. You're like, oh, sweet, cool, there's pictures. There's probably more of those in the New Testament. So you went there. Uh, Psalms is probably the most read uh, piece of the Old Testament. It's the longest book. The longest chapter in the entire Bible finds its way in Psalms as well, in Psalm 119. Nothing wrong with Psalms. It's certainly a beautiful picture, but it's not, uh, the, the comprom- it's not the whole piece of the Old Testament. Some of you in a Bible reading prayer, you know, have read a, a proverb a day and believe that it keeps the doctor away or something. Um, but, but here's the structure of the Old Testament. This will just kind of give us a picture, okay? The first five books of the Pentateuch, Penta meaning five, is called the law. Then you have a long section. You're not going to be able to read the books of the Bible. It's fine. I want to show you the structure. Uh, then there's a huge um, summation of history. Uh, these uh, books uh, were written and kind of give us a great picture uh, especially of God's uh, chosen uh, people in the Israelites. Then there is a section which includes both Psalms and Proverbs of poetry and wisdom. I think that's why we're so drawn to it. It's written eloquently. It draws us in. Uh, the Psalms is beautiful. It's like one worship uh, hymn after another, and most of it written by David. Certainly a beautiful book. Then there are the major uh, prophets, uh, which uh, surmise beautiful books like Jeremiah and all of your favorite, Lamentations. And then finally... Uh, the minor prophets uh, in the Old Testament. Now, um, all of this Old Testament builds together a phenomenal story that does find its foundation in both Genesis and Exodus. Okay? So that said, just for a second, look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Second book of the Bible, my guess is page 35 or something, I'm not sure. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. There's a missing piece to most English translations. The missing piece is a Hebrew word, vav. Everyone say that with me. Come on. Vav, right? So you're like, I'll use that on my next date. Like, that sounds pretty... Sounds pretty romantic, you know, like, I vow you, you know, like, it's pretty, it's got a nice ring to it. Well, it's not quite as weighty as it seems. The word vav in the Hebrew is the word and. Interestingly enough, there are two other books of the Pentateuch that begin with the word vav, which means what? Well, yes, we know it means and, but which means what? It means the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus is connected with the word and, okay? Vav, right? So that means that, um, like we always say about the New Testament and its breakup of chapters and verses, that means that that Genesis and Exodus are 
are one story. And in fact, the Pentateuch in general. Okay? So because Exodus is so closely tied to Genesis, and by the way, our very first book that we ever taught in this church plant in 2005 was Genesis. And as a 25-year-old first-time church planter and young pastor, that was a big task, okay? Um, man, it was, it was huge. It was tough, really, really tough. And so to surmise about a year and a half's worth teaching of Genesis, I'd like to give you Genesis in five minutes. Is that cool? Okay? We need to understand it. And we're going to do it by, uh, by characters. Okay, the first character in Genesis is, uh, you should be thankful, is God. In the beginning, God created. Uh, one of the most amazing words in the entire Bible, in my opinion, is the word Elohim. It's the plural word for God. It's the plural word for God that finds itself in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And it, it means Father, Son, and Spirit. In the beginning, God. God always was Father. God always was Son. And God always was Spirit. Well, in the beginning of Genesis, God is there. He's present. He's Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. And you guys know the story. He creates. He makes. He develops. He reveals. Okay? And God, beginning this story, introduces himself as a character that holds the universe literally in the palm of his hands. Okay? The uh, next most significant character in Genesis is our good friend, Adam. Uh, what we learned when we studied Genesis is that Adam um, was created by God, the scripture says, in his image in chapter 1, and uh, was told to be fruitful and multiply. Um, Adam realizes, uh, as God does as well, that it's not good for man to be alone. And then from dust and ribs, God makes the woman. All of the men in this room should now be saying amen, right? Like, praise God for that moment in history. God, if you've done, you know, you've done some amazing things, one of the amazing things you did was create the woman, right? This is a chance for you to nudge your wife, put your arm around her, tell her that you love her, all right? It's not Valentine's Day. Just take advantage of it now, okay? So in Adam, the realization is that it's not good for man to be alone. Well, Adam and Eve... Uh, tempted, deceived by the enemy, by the serpent, by Satan in the garden, as Scripture says in Romans, sin. And because they sinned, then all who come after them are born into sin. Every child that's born on the face of this planet until Jesus returns outside of Christ himself is born into sin because of that sin, that separation from God, that failure to obey well, a lot of things happen in Genesis, but our next most significant character is this man named Noah, which if you haven't seen the trailer, uh, the trailer yet for the Noah movie that's coming out, Russell Crowe, uh, I mean, it's going to be crazy, okay? And I'm not like making, I don't know what it's rated yet, so I'm not, you know, I, I don't know. It looks unbelievable though, okay? Go home, YouTube Noah trailer, and just like get your tissues, and I mean, you're going to like just be running around the house. It looks awesome, okay? All right? So... Seriously, it's amazing. Russell Crowe, are you kidding me? Like Gladiator and Noah and the Bible? Like it just comes together, right? Now, uh, God comes, calls Noah, tells Noah, uh, hey, uh, there's a problem. A lot of corruption has uh, taken over. Sin, because of Adam and Eve, uh, has now corrupted uh, the world. I'm going to destroy it. Uh, For those of you that were with us in the Genesis journey, this is an interesting moment in Scripture because... Uh, Though it it says later that that Noah was certainly a God-fearing man. It's as if God just one day says, Noah, you're my man. 
uh, here's the plan. And could you imagine the weight of being Noah and hearing the plan that, that God is going to destroy the world? And so despite much opposition and many naysayers, Noah begins the process with his small family of building a gigantic vessel that could hold, as you know the story, animals and all sorts of creatures um, to be saved and spared. I remember teaching Genesis, and the most significant image that I ever had in my mind, and it's actually in the trailer as well, which I'm glad, is when the flood does start, the people that are left outside the ark beating on the sides, like their fingernails scraping. They realize that all the naysaying that they had done to Noah about his boat actually now has come true. Uh, So Noah, huge, significant character, but my friends, the entire story of the Bible changes around this man named Abraham. Great song. Many of you grew up with it. Um, Still a great song. Some of you still sing it. Um, Father Abraham, right, had many sons. Many sons of Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, you know. And I never understood, um, I never understood like how like turn around, sit down, like translated into praising the Lord, but it's okay. Like it's a great song. Well, Abraham is a significant character, and here's why. Uh, He was a pagan man from a pagan land, from a pagan family. And God shows up, uh, then his name was Abram, and he says, listen, I'm going to bless those who bless you in uh, Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to make your name great. He makes a ton of promises with Abraham, eventually establishes a covenant with Abraham and all of his descendants that whatever happens with Abraham... What happens with Abraham is going to mean that all the things that come after him in Israelite history, in Bible history, are going to keep coming back to this man named Abraham. Uh, If you're going on the marriage retreat, we're going to be studying Abraham and Sarah's marriage because they struggled. Um, Like, Abraham lied about his wife Sarah. They were having problems getting pregnant. The Pharaoh takes her in. Uh, Then the Pharaoh learns that Abraham was lying. And and so then Pharaoh's throwing cattle and all kinds of things because he doesn't want to get smited by God. I mean, it's a crazy story. You're like, that's exactly like my marriage. My father-in-law gave me cattle. Okay, well, fair enough, right? Um, But this man Abraham gets to experience firsthand the promises of God, the covenants of God, and watch God begin to unfold it. He has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son son named Jacob. These are the patriarchs of the story of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there's a son of Jacob that transitions the story of Genesis and then becomes the focal point of about chapter 43 to chapter 50 in Genesis And that is our good buddy Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, okay? Um, Unbelievable story. It's it's, it's like all of a sudden Hollywood's realizing, you know, hey, you know what? We should take these Bible stories and make them like epic films because they're insane stories, right? And uh, the story of Joseph is no different. He's sold by his brothers. He's left for dead in summation. He ends up a a ruler in Egypt, and as God had prophesied, a massive famine hits the land, and in the end, his brothers, the same ones that had sold him, that had left him for dead, end up coming to take food from Joseph, who's now a leader in Egypt, and so Joseph, instead of um, killing them off, instead of taking vengeance, forgives them, provides them food, 
In fact, in some senses of the word, honors them. It's a crazy story of God's forgiveness. In the very last chapter of Genesis 50, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Okay. So, in summation, five minutes in Genesis, we can learn this. That God is beginning to establish what He's going to do with people by allowing us to follow the story of this Israelite nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the patriarchs. Uh, Jacob has 12 sons, one of which is Joseph, and we're going to get to read about him in the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 1. Genesis is the foundation, and Exodus builds a piece of foundation that allows us to see some of these promises, some of these covenants, some of the depths of what God is doing get fulfilled. Genesis in five minutes. Any questions? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So now if we go back to uh, chapter one of Exodus chapter one, uh, and now we can begin to kind of break this uh, text down. Verse one says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Remember, Jacob is the father of all of these sons. He eventually has to go to Egypt as well because he is a part of the famine. And this exact phrasing finds itself in Genesis chapter 46, verse 8. Which means that the writer of of Exodus decides to begin Exodus even with a vav, still going back in history to then push us forward. Which allows us an opportunity to talk about authorship. Who wrote it? If you grew up in Sunday school, 100% guaranteed you heard Moses. Okay? You heard Moses wrote it. And I'm going to try to say it like, like God says, Charlton had, well, Moses, you know? Moses wrote it, okay? Moses wrote um, Exodus. That, that's what you heard growing up. Now, not saying I disagree with that, just hear me out for a second. What's happened uh, recently and, and also in plenty of years before this is there's much debate around authorship. And the reason is, um, if Moses wrote the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or at least a good portion of it, there's large questions about who wrote about his death. Like, was Moses, like, was Moses penning it from the grave? You know, like, h- how does that work? And so beginning with that problematic issue, they've then started to debunk some scholars who might have wrote it. And they've come up with all kinds of theories. The most popular theory outside of Moses about Exodus is that it was written by five different folks. Um, They kind of compiled their stories and put it together. As for me and my house, um, take it as it were, I believe Moses did write it. I believe there's uh, prominent evidence for that. I feel like we have a lot of things leading to that. and so whether you're in a different camp or not, I'm just I'm letting you know there are different camps. There's different beliefs. There are different thoughts. Uh, for me and my house, I believe Moses wrote it. The next question after you ask authorship is date. When was it written? Well, the crazy thing about the Bible, and this is what I love about the Bible, people say the Bible doesn't have any logic in it. It's all faith. I, I 100% disagree. Okay? The Bible matches up, puts the pieces of the puzzle together so well. Check this out in 1 Kings. 
Let me go back up to First Kings. First Kings one in the four in the uh, in the 480th uh, year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv. How about that for a month? Come on now, that's a new tat. There we go. Which is the second month he began to build the house of the Lord. So does everyone understand what's happening here? In other words, if we know like when Solomon's reign happens. Then we know when the Exodus happens. Well, crazy enough, we do know when Solomon's reign was. The the history of that is well proven, so check this out. The fourth year of his reign is 966 B.C., okay? Which means, quick math, all right, look at this, next slide. If you add 480, that puts us in 1446 to 1445 B.C. that this story occurs, okay? Uh, When was it written? Sometime around then, most probably, but as far as when it occurs... A long time before Jesus shows up, okay? Right? Can we agree? Like, do you guys get that, okay? So we're like way back in the history of this nation. You're like, well, what happens for like all the rest of the 1,400 years before Jesus uh, shows up? Read, you know? Like, like, that's, like that's what I'm saying. There's a period of, of, you know, a few hundred years of silence, but outside of that, like the Bible does a great job of describing to us what happens before Jesus comes. So, in uh, these names, verse 1 says, written by Moses, I believe in this year, as far as a date, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And let's read these names together. This will be fun. I'm not meaning for you to read them with me. Just look at it with me. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Ishakur, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Nephalti. Gad, and Asher. Hold on. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Well, there are how many tribes of Israel? Twelve. And these eleven had went with Jacob to Egypt. So who's the twelfth? Joseph, right? Okay, so Joseph's already in Egypt. So if you were doing the math there and you're like, hold on a second, like twelve tribes of Israel, twelve sons of Jacob, where, right? You'll also notice, for those of you that love the Numbers Bible game, right? Like you like try to piece the Bible together in numbers, so you've read a bunch of websites that if you can, you know, you can predict the future. This is an interesting moment in Scripture. Twelve, certainly a significant number in the Bible. Not only twelve, but also seventy. Okay, look at this, verse five. All of the se- uh, all of the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons, and Joseph, as we just mentioned, was already in Egypt. Okay, so you have seventy people that are in Egypt, and I know that most of you know where Egypt is, but just for fun, let's show some maps, okay? Cue map one. Um, Now, I I show this to you, and I'm going to show you a couple different maps just to give you a different perspective. The green line there, and it doesn't look green on this slide um, because our lamp is going out, but uh, the green line there is the journey of the Exodus, which is what will dominate our story through this book, okay? So you can see where they begin there in a zone, which is the top left city, and then they go down. Just to put Egypt in perspective uh, as where it pertains to Jerusalem, next map, I've uh, put a big red box around Jerusalem, okay? So zone, that same city, is over in our uh, kind of our middle left with a star next to it, and the big box is, is Jerusalem, okay? Just to kind of give us some uh, perspective. Do I have one more map slide, I think, maybe? Maybe, no? Okay. So this is where we're talking about when it comes to Egypt. Has anyone in here been to Egypt, just so we can kind of call you the resident scholar on Egypt? No one has. Perfect. Um, 
we are looking for volunteers to take some pictures, and so we'll pay uh, one-tenth of your airfare. So if you're interested, come and find me after the service, and we'll get you hooked up. Now, verse 6, something significant happens. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. Okay, uh, so, so real quick, we jump ahead, right? And I... Not to be morbid, but I will be. Um, Isn't it crazy to think that unless Jesus comes back, there will be a day where this entire room is dead, with the Lord or not? Isn't that crazy to think? Like it's like like while we're living right now, it's so easy to conceptualize. Like, dude, we're the like we're the generation. Then we're gonna take it home, and you know. We're immortal, and no, like unless the Lord comes back, and so we're like, please hurry, right? All of us should be that way. But unless he, unless he does, there will be a time where all of us, just like Joseph and an entire generation, is gone. So the question is, what does that generation leave behind? I remember teaching through Genesis, and the constant theme in my heart was legacy. Uh, Many of you guys know my grandfather's story. I'm not going to share the whole thing with you now, but if you go through the MV, you get a chance to hear the impact that my grandfather had on me. Legacy is an unbelievable thing because no matter who you are, you have been deeply impacted by those who are connected with you and have gone before you, good or bad. And for those of you that are parents, you are already leaving some sort of legacy with your children. I know uh, folks who are, you know, 50 plus, they all say the same thing, right? It goes by so fast, right? Did anyone go by slow for? Okay, raise your hand, you go to Egypt. No, okay? Okay. Um, it goes, by, it goes by fast. That's what everyone says. So uh, earlier today, my daughter Avery brings me, this, brings me this beautiful three-ring binder that she's made for me. And on the cover is, you know, I love you, Dad. And she says, Daddy, this is a book that you can keep all the notes that I write to you in, right? And so I, I you know, I open it, and there, you know, the first page says something like, you know, pictures I've colored and all kinds of things. And then she whips out an envelope and she says, uh, okay, well, here's some notes that you can add. You know, and so I'm, I'm reading these and the first one is, you know, I, I couldn't ask for a better dad, you're the best dad ever, you're the, you know, I'm just like, people say it goes fast. I want to sit in this moment forever. Like where my daughter's seven She's got teeth coming in, and it's making her other teeth grow, cro- you know, coming crooked. You know, she, she's just like gorgeous little girl, just and just like we're sharing this. This, it's so powerful. I, I just don't want to. I, I don't want to let this moment ever leave. And what I think happens is if you don't understand that every moment in your entire life is building, is developing, is structuring some form of legacy, then I think it goes by so fast that the legacy almost skips by you. 
In other words, if, if, you're, if you're never fully present, if life is always about tomorrow, if you're never able just to like stop everything and sit and leave the phone and leave the social media and just look your kids and look your friends and look people you're talking to in the eye instead of texting while you're conversating, I think what you realize is like legacy and all, it just passes you by. You wake up, you're 60, and you're not even sure what's happened in life. What I'm saying, church, is is an entire generation dies off. Joseph, who was an amazing man of God, dies off, and all kinds of other people. And the question is, what's been left behind? What kind of legacy goes uh, goes after them? Well, we find out. Verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. <laughs> uh, and and you know, some of you guys are like, well, how does that happen? Well, um, we're not going to go into that this evening. Um, but what we do know is that God told Adam, like, be fruitful and multiply. And what we know is the Israelites, they got to it. You know what I'm saying? Like, right? They, they were fruitful and they've been multiplying, you know? And what's cool, and it's kind of funny to think of it in that way, but the thing that God had commanded them to do, the, almost the, the prophetic words, be fruitful and multiply, the nation of Israel did. And we know that, that when the exodus happens, okay, skipping out a little bit, I mean, there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Israelites, and it comes back to who? Seventy. Seventy. So, I mean, these people, this nation, the birth of the Israelites in Egypt begins with something so small, and it becomes something that's so great. And when you come back next week, you're going to start to see that this greatness creates a problem. But the first thing is, these people were fruitful and increased greatly. Look at this. They multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong. So as this nation is being established, as these people are following in the footsteps of the patriarchs, as God is fulfilling in Abraham the things that he told Abraham in, back in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to bless those, I'm going to make your name great, great is going to be your nation, it's going to be greater than the stars, he tells him later in Genesis, it's happening, he fulfills his words, and my friends, I cannot wait to show you all of the times in Exodus where what God says comes true. And let me just go ahead and give you a precursor in the whole Bible and your life. It's never not that way. Whatever God says always comes true. It always happens. It always gets realized. And this journey of the Exodus will be whether people are willing to accept that or not. Whether they believe that or not. Whether you believe that or not. Okay. And in verse 7, it ends. So that the land was filled with them. It starts with 70, and like, for lack of a better term, a flu virus in the ML kids in the wintertime, it just spreads, right? Like I always laugh when Heidi comes home, she's like, oh, someone in ML kids and I had the flu, you know, and then the next day everyone's Facebook, you know, statuses, they were puking and they were puking too, you know, just like, it just, it just spreads, okay? This Israelite nation in Egypt grows greatly. Now, I feel like even from these first seven verses, we have a lot to wrestle with. When I was reading the Gettysburg Address, 
I'm not so sure if you caught it, but Abraham Lincoln said something that has caught my attention and forever will change me. He says this in the middle of the speech. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here. Abraham Lincoln, living in the moment, believed that his words weren't going to go anywhere. He's the president of the United States, but in the moment, like when you're just living, he says that, like, the world won't even remember this. Like, I'm not even sure that if this will be quoted. Like, maybe in the newspaper the next day, but little did he know, literally 150 years later, I in a sermon would be reading the Gettysburg Address. So somehow, his perception of history, his perception of his place in history, his perception of who he is even, maybe in his humility, was downgraded or lessened. But 150 years later, we're still speaking the Gettysburg Address. It's like, did Joseph think that he was like making his play for the Bible? Like when Paul was called, but he was like, all right, so I'm going to be in this book. It's called the Bible one day. You know, you guys, I can sign yours. You know, you guys want me to sign 1 Corinthians? You know, I'll just come over here from prison. He's like reaching his hand out the cell, signing it, you know. Did they understand the legacy that they were leaving? No, but I do think they understood this from James. Check this out. James chapter 4. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Agree? Everyone agree with that? No idea. You think you do. You want to know. Tomorrow, don't know. Some of you tomorrow may have the worst day of your life. Others the best. We don't know. Then James says this, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now, here's what I've always done with this passage. Always, always, always. I've lessened the mist. I've said things like, see guys, like we're very, very temporal. I mean, we show up and one day, just like Joseph and all the generations, we'll, we'll be gone. We'll be dead. With the Lord or not. Like this life is so short, all of it's going to go away one day. We're not taking any money, any possessions with us. We are a mist. And, and I've always taken that slant to James chapter 4. But all of a sudden I started realizing the significance of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the significance of 70. And it caused me to think a little bit about you and I, about the minutes that are being used, about the hours that our life is surmising, about every conversation we have, every job place we're in. Every grocery store that we ever uh, walk in, it, it, it caused me to think about all of these things and maybe for the first time in my life believe this more than ever, that the mist matters. And yes, we are a mist, like a vapor in cold air. It will show up for just a little bit, but in the scheme of eternity, it will seem so small. But I'm telling you right now, the mist still matters. 
every second of every day that you exist on this earth with the opportunity to glorify the great God who has clearly left his legacy and said, now you show the world how great my legacy is. You get the opportunity with your miss to worship God. It's the opportunity that Joseph had, that Abraham had, that Isaac had, that Jacob had, and that we're going to get to watch this group of Israelites see what they do with their mist. And what I've realized, my friends, is that the mists that come after you will forever be impacted by you. Every child of yours, everyone that looks up to you, every disciple that is discipled by you, those mists will all be deeply impacted by you. And so I believe we have to begin this journey in Exodus saying, Lord, please help us. Help us see that Exodus isn't just a history lesson. Help us know that our coming together here isn't just so that we learn the Bible, slap some high fives, and walk out of the door. This journey is about growing in our understanding and our awe and our love of the character of God and in light of the character of God walking out of those doors and living for his glory, period. That's why we're here. That's Exodus. And so I want to pray for that. Some of you have taken lightly your mist, believing that your minutes do not matter, maybe believing some do and some don't. I'm telling you, my friends. Every single second, God has given us such a great opportunity. And if not, you wake up and Avery's 14. And I can't even remember the last three years. I don't want that to happen. I want every moment with her for me to be breathing in her the love of Christ. That one day she might say, you know what? My daddy, he screwed up sometimes and he sinned and he did some wrong. But let me tell you one thing about my daddy. My daddy loved the Lord and even in his sin he repented. And my daddy told me how much the Lord loved me. May that be said of every single person that interacts with us. You know what? With their mist, with their vapor, for their, with their short time, they made clear who was their God. And they made clear that every second they had with me was important, was valuable. Exodus is going to be a fun journey. Let's pray right now that God will cause us to believe that the mist that he's given us matters. Father, I think so, so many of us right now in this room are realizing that maybe we've lessened or taken for granted or made a mockery of the opportunity you've given us to live. As we take this journey, as my friends and I long to learn more about you from this beautiful story, I pray, God, that you would give us an awareness of the minutes, of the seconds. Give us a love of the people that rub shoulders with us every day that we don't even know their name. Give us a a newfound desire to shepherd our children in ways that we are currently lessening or or just putting on someone else. God, show us clearly those non-believers who are just desperate, not for a Bible to be smacked across their face, but just to be loved. God, I pray right now in these moments you will show us the power of legacy. 
of strong people in our lives. God, help us believe that because we're sons and daughters of you, that that matters, that that has significance. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are in us. God, help us trust that this life is more than just living. It's about worship. Help us believe that again tonight. Let's stand and respond.